Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks for tuning into this special bonus episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, investors, and in today's case, politicians that are shaping the future of agriculture. The reason for today's special episode is the Farm Workforce Modernization Act that recently passed the U.S. House of Representatives and is now moving on to the Senate. This legislation is an effort to make progress on what I would call the mess, that is U.S. ag labor policy. Shea Myers, a farmer who was featured on this show back in episode 178, called me a couple weeks ago to talk about the importance of this bill to U.S. farmers and their employees. In fact, I've heard over 300 agricultural organizations voice their support for this bill. Ag labor reform like this has been attempted really for decades, but has never been passed mostly due to politics. And for those of you who know me even a little bit, you probably know I tend to stay out of politics. My lack of interest in politics completely really has led to very little policy being discussed on this show. But I actually, in reflection, think this might be a mistake. If I take a step back and think about what's truly shaping the future of agriculture, sure, it's technology, which we always talk about, but probably even more so, it's markets and it's policy. So while I don't see this show ever taking a political stance, mostly because of my apolitical nature, I do think it's important to discuss policy that could have a big impact on the future of agriculture, and I think that's what we have on the show today. Joining me here is Shea Myers, who, as I said, you heard from in 178. He farms along the Oregon-Idaho border and is U.S. Representative Cliff Bentz to talk about the importance of this legislation, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. First, what does this bill actually do? Well, uh, to put it really simply here, it improves the process for H-2A workers, which is the name for the visa for temporary agricultural workers in the U.S., It also makes it mandatory that agricultural employers e-verify employees' legal work status for employment. Finally, and perhaps most controversially, it establishes a program for agricultural workers and their families to earn legal status through continued agricultural employment if they meet certain requirements. Okay, enough with the basics there. Let's hear from Shea Myers and Representative Cliff Bentz. Starting with Shea, who gives an overview of why he thinks this bill is a huge step in the right direction for farmers. As I've sat around and we've discussed a solution to this situation that we're in, and and I mean the border situation, the folks that are here undocumented, and the need for labor, this is like... I've had this conversation. I've, I've in my head and in conversations with other farmers and other people, this bill has already been formulated and really similar to the way that it's been proposed. And that's what's really unique about it because what I think it's important for people to understand is how the whole thing works. So first of all, we need ag laborers. Second of all, the truth is on most farms, 60 to 75% of the folks are probably undocumented. We can't verify that because we don't and are, are not required to do e-verify. That's part of the whole thing. So Again, you have the H-2A, I kind of digress there a little bit, but we have the the undocumented workers, we have the need for H-2A, but now what's the solution? Like we have all of these folks that are already here. How do we solve the problem? And E-Verify is really the solution. It really is. Okay, and this is something that gets really frustrating for farmers. Everyone makes the assumption that we hire undocumented workers because they're cheaper or because we are trying to pay them under the table or something like that. That is not the case. All of these workers come in, they have the same rights and privileges of anyone else. And we don't know 
on purpose, whether they have papers or they don't have papers, whether they're documented or they're undocumented. We don't know. And we shouldn't know because they, maybe that could overall, not on our farm, I wouldn't feel, but they could be treated differently. We don't know whether they're documented or not, but they should be able to get documented because they have been here and they have been doing the work. And if we all put ourselves in that situation, a lot of us would be changing you know, our address as well to try and get some opportunity. These folks, and I think this is the, the last part of the pay side that's important for people to understand, these folks that are working for us now Minimum wage on our farm is $15 an hour now. So $15 to $20 an hour in that same realm of earnings. Those same folks are going to make $8 a day working in Mexico. $8 per day. That's the minimum salary in Mexico. So they can't survive doing the same work. And that's what they would get paid there. So they either come here and make that or they struggle within their own country. So I think it's important for people to understand that point as well. The bill addresses the need for labor, the undocumented workers that are here, and then lastly, it, with E-Verify, it stops people from continuing to come to agriculture and work for us if we're required. And the laws are structured so that we can E-Verify each employee. And that's the way that it should be. We, we shouldn't continue to employ people in this country that are undocumented. We shouldn't. But there's a lot here. And there's a lot here for a multitude of reasons, a lot of which is governmental policy that has allowed people to cross and cross and cross since the Reagan era when they tried to fix this one time and they didn't get the E-Verify part done to stop the problem. So we E-Verify and we seal the border in a way that's appropriate. And if you don't have a job, you've effectively sealed the border. Whether there's a fence there or not, the majority of people are not going to come if they can't get a job. So that's why this bill is like so, I like to say, well thought out. I mean, it really has all the components to solve the problem it has H2A visas to allow people to come. It has a solution for the people who are already here. And it has a preventative measure to stop people from continuing to cross. And for many of these very reasons, U.S. Representative Cliff Bentz voted in favor of the bill. But he says it's not perfect, and he hopes to see some changes as the bill moves through the Senate. In a way, Representative Bentz broke ranks from several of his many fellow Republicans who voted against the bill. I asked what made this legislation so controversial and why he ultimately voted for it. Right. Well, if we can get the H-2A program to work, then all of a sudden people like Shea will have uh, access to folks that will come here and will work and, and then go back home. The concept is kind of a uh, work arrangement and that's it. And that should be acceptable politically to a lot of people. On the other side of the bill, the, the part that goes to those who have been here for 10 years and or longer working in egg because they have to have worked in egg for a significant part of each of those 10 years. Those people then don't have to worry about being deported and they can then make plans to stay working. And more to the point, the people hiring them know that they are doing so legally because each of those people has to get a real social security number and that has to be verified through the e-verify program. When it comes to what caused so many Republicans to oppose the bill, it's the current disastrous situation on the border. It's just an absolute humanitarian disaster down there and so many sad, sad, sad situations that have been triggered by, I would say, loose language used by the current administration. Because the, the part of the bill that people talk about as uh, being too liberal 
is the part that requires that you've lived here for 10 years or at least eight, uh, or at least uh, it, it, there's some different time frames, but it's focused on those who have been here for 10 years. And then you have to work an egg another four before you can uh, go apply for the possibility of a green card. And so 14 years, that kind of framework is important because it sends the signal that if you come here illegally, good luck. And so now all of a sudden we have legalized our workforce and we put appropriate sidebars. They can be tighter and I will be making some of those suggestions in place for that workforce. But it takes what now is a very uncomfortable situation for all kinds of people in across the United States of America and advances us in a way I think perhaps with the changes we're suggesting in the Senate uh, is going to be acceptable. But we had to start the conversation and this bill does it. So the idea here is to streamline the process of agricultural workers getting here legally, while at the same time making it more difficult for those to get a job illegally. For Shea Myers, he sees this as a step in the right direction, not only for farmers, but really for all Americans who want to keep their domestic food security intact. We have to think about like where our food's going to come from at some point as Americans. We have to address that issue. Like We're okay with our clothing coming from China and Vietnam and all of these other developing nations. Are we okay with our food doing that? Because it's not just an availability of labor, it's the cost of that labor that is becoming overwhelming and uh, unprofitable. And that means that many of the vegetable crops that we're currently growing become less and less viable every year. And at the rate that we're going with the H-2A program, which, and this is the problem, the H-2A program is so incredibly expensive. And I don't think the average American realizes because they're not dealing with it, not because of intelligence or anything else, but they don't deal with it, what the absolute cost is. You know, we're, we're looking at nearly, well, the, the effective rate is almost $17 an hour, but we're paying housing and transportation. So we're, we're pushing $20, $21 an hour for general field labor. And that means a lot of our crops are no longer viable to grow in the state of Oregon. The ability for us to do a lot of things for local production are going out the window. So I, you know, I keep tugging at my shirt. I'm sure if I looked at the back of my shirt and, and I'm, and I'm guilty of this as well. Okay. But if I look at the back of the shirt, it's not made in the USA, regardless of whether it's a designer brand or, you know, from a box store, it's not. And the labor that was involved in making this shirt was massively I mean, orders of magnitude less than what we pay our folks here in the United States. And sometimes we get excited by how inexpensive the things are that we can buy, regardless of the country that we're buying it from. We're fine without clothes for three months, six months, a year. We could probably make it two years, most of us, with what's in our closet, aside from kids. But adults, we can make it two years with what's in our closet easily. We can't make it two weeks with what's in our pantry in most cases. So we cannot continue to ignore the security that American grown produce brings us as individuals. And that's what we need to address in this bill and in policy and in the cost of labor overall. Or we're going to find ourselves where Mexico, where these, these jobs that we're, we're going to allow to, to transfer south, these folks are going to make $8 to $16 a day. And we are not even going to have our own food produced within our country. That's a scary thought. And it's something that we have to continue to address. And this is just one small step in that direction to address the issue and allow production to continue to at least exist within the United States. 
inevitably in this ag labor discussion, there's always going to be that objection that we're just making it easier here for people to come into the country and quote unquote steal jobs from American citizens. Shea says this is not the case. He'd welcome employees born and raised here, but generally speaking, they simply don't want to do this work. I mean, you would think, okay, so the argument three, four, five years ago in our area, and I get this on social media on, on channels when I'm trying to talk about the subject all the time, is why don't you just pay more? And my counter argument is, well, I'm, I'm already paying more than any startup job. Any, you can go to a fast food restaurant, I'm paying three, four, five dollars more an hour than that now. Um, more than you're going to work working stocking shelves at a grocery store. You know, we're, like I said, $17 an hour this year. And it's not a function of the pay rate. It's a function of the difficulty of the work. And somehow a lot of us that have grown up in the country and with the comforts and luxuries that we have, we're not willing to do that type of work. We are not willing to do physical labor. We cannot find the people to do it. Certainly Oregon's minimum wage in our area is 11, what are we at this right now? 11 and a half dollars an hour. Let's say we could pay $15 an hour and have local folks come and do the work. We'd love to save the two or three or $4 an hour, but it doesn't work because nobody shows up. So we've been forced to go to the H2A program, even with the 40% per hour cost increase that we've had to absorb over the last five years, 40% over the last five years, we wouldn't do that we, we, if we didn't have to. But even with that, it's hard for us to continue forward and find the laborers to do it, regardless of the pay rate. And I think one of the saddest things, forgive me for jumping in here, uh, Tim, but the, the saddest things uh, I've seen, uh, I don't want to skip over the, the humanitarian crisis at the border because that's truly sad. But having people call me in the last couple of years and say, we can't get our crops out of the field. We can't get our crops off the trees and we can't find people that are willing to go out and do the work. And unless we have these programs in place with people that are motivated still to go into the fields and the motivation in part, I think, when you look at somebody who's sending their money back to Mexico, they're making far more than, than $17 an hour, because when that money gets back home, it's take it times the exchange rate. It works for all kinds of interesting uh, multinational reasons, but we need to have a proper control uh, system in place. And I think this bill captures a big chunk of that, but there's, there's more work to be done on it. A lot of the time on this show, when we talk about labor problems, we often default to automation. This is a show, after all, about agricultural innovation. Shea says automation will certainly play a part in the long-term answer, but it's definitely not the full answer, and it's certainly not helpful in the short term. The thing about the automation side, and I, and I love automation, I am excited about the things that are coming down the road right now and all of the things that will change agriculture significantly over the next probably 10 years. That's what we're talking in my mind. I think really before we have a lot of wide adoption of this, we're 10 to 15 years away. I'd love it to be five years away. And maybe if, if nothing changed, we could make it for five years, but we're talking 10 years, which means we have to have something to bridge the gap from now until then. And even then we're never going to automate all of the processes. We never are going to automate all the processes. We're going to automate the things that require the most significant portions of labor but there's still going to be lots of labor for decades and decades, if not for the rest of our lives, that are going to require significant amounts of human labor to produce food. So you've heard the perspective of a member of the U.S. House of Representatives and, of course, from a farmer and agricultural employer here from Shea. But what do employees think of these changes? Yeah, I, you know, I, I went down actually 
at lunch on Monday when uh, this bill kind of crossed my desk and I read it to all of my employees during their lunch break because I wanted them to know what was coming down the pipeline. And I needed them to understand what the political process was doing and potentially to get involved. And for them, and I'm not exaggerating, there were tears shed during that lunch meeting. Tears of hope, tears of frustration, tears of fear, but tears were shed during that meeting with them even seeing the possibility. I'm talking people that have been here, in some cases, Lupe, who is sitting right next to me, she'd been here 15 years, 15 years working. And for her to have the ability, the opportunity to not live in the shadows, these folks don't live in the shadows in the way that a lot of people would think. I mean, they, they have homes and cars and grandchildren in Lupe's case. They live here, but they don't get to live here like you and I. They, they're never truly adopted into the fold. And they did it out of necessity in their mind. If you sat to them on a personal level at the table and they explained their reason for coming to the United States, Lupe with a one-year-old baby in her arms when she came who, by the way, is the operations manager at our packing facility now, her daughter that she brought with her, you couldn't look that person in the eye and say, no, you don't have a chance. There, you should never get your papers. You should never be documented. You, if you, on a personal level, could never do that. On a policy level, could you put the blinders on and, and say, okay, well, you did X, so your consequences are Y? Yeah, you could. But on a personal level, you'd never make it. You could never win that argument because of the personal sacrifice that these folks have made to be in this country. So it is massive. The change, the improvement, and the opportunity is huge for them. I want to thank Shay Myers and Representative Cliff Bentz for taking the time to talk about this here on the show. And look, I really don't like politics. And I realize parts of this episode maybe got a little bit political. But to bury our heads in the sand and ignore the significance of policy that can have a big impact on the future of agriculture would really be a big mistake. And I hope this episode sheds more light on how the Farm Workforce Modernization Act could help move forward to a better ag labor situation in the United States. This isn't perfect and no solution will be, of course, but I think if it can get through the Senate, this would be a big step forward in improving the labor situation in U.S. agriculture. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. As always, I don't take it lightly. I'll be back Wednesday with another story of ag innovation.